Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're pleased to be joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I've been looking forward to us getting together this week because we have a lot to cover, don't we? We certainly do. It's been a busy week, and some say we've got a really activist Supreme Court. Actually, I would say it's not that it's an activist Supreme Court. It is that it is a court that is taking the restrained role that the courts were supposed to be taking from the very beginning and generally were taking until about the 1930s. And yes, it seems like the court is retreating from some earlier positions, but in doing so, what it's really doing, as I see it, is it is getting back to the Constitution as the framers intended it, and that's where we really ought to be. But, you know, before we get into that, I think we ought to say a few things just about the whole nature of our democracy, as we sometimes call it, although I think constitutional republic is a better term for it. And anyway, the framers started out with a very difficult experiment. Thomas Jefferson had once said that it does not matter to me whether someone believes in no God or one God or three gods or 20 gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. But the Reverend Lynn, a Dutch Reformed pastor from New York, wrote in response to that that if someone believes in no God, pretty soon he will pick my pocket and break my leg. In other words, he was recognizing something that I don't know that Jefferson would have totally disregarded this, but he certainly didn't account for it in that particular statement, that we, our actions are affected by our beliefs. Likewise, our religious beliefs affect our laws, our morals, and so much about us. So it does matter what somebody believes. So are these two ideas, Reverend Lynn's idea and Jefferson's idea of we should be a society where people can believe whatever they want and it doesn't affect anybody but themselves, are these compatible? Is the latter, the Jeffersonian ideal, even possible? We have that famous statement by Voltaire, although nobody can prove that Voltaire actually said it, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. But can we really live in a society like that? In the Federalist Papers, that's the series of essays written by John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison to persuade people to support the ratification of our Constitution. In Federalist Number 2, John Jay, who later became Chief Justice of our Supreme Court, has a very interesting statement. He says, Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country to one united people, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs, 
and who, by their joint councils, arms, and efforts, fighting side by side through a long and bloody war, have nobly established general liberty and independence. This country and this people seem to have been made for each other, and it appears as if it was the design of providence that an inheritance so proper and convenient for a band of brethren united to each other by the strongest ties should never be split into a number of unsocial, jealous, and alien sovereignties. Well, much more that he goes into there, but his point is that despite the fact that we claim to be a society committed to diversity in which people are free to hold different views and express different views, nevertheless, we are a society in which we have a certain commonality. That is, people that are descended from the same ancestors, he says, which would indicate mostly of the same race. People who have the same religion, that doesn't mean that everybody is an Episcopalian, but that the overwhelming majority were Christians, and that those who were not, nevertheless, held a basic Christian worldview and basic ideas of law and government, us being welded together by the common effort and the war for independence. In other words, he is saying that because of this commonality that we have in America, our system of representative government and of freedom is going to work. Now, the question is, can it work in a society in which we no longer have that commonality? We, of course, have had a great deal of immigration, and at first, most of that came from people of Europe, although sometimes Eastern Europe or Southern Europe instead of Northern Europe, where the original settlers mostly came from. And people coming in, especially in the 19th, I'm sorry, in the 20th, and now the 21st centuries from different races, different parts of the world. And nevertheless, many of these would still hold to Christian values. People that come from different races, of course, can come together and can certainly share a commonality of religious beliefs, commonality of moral values and our principles of government. But as we start seeing this breakdown with the homosexual movement, as we saw developing large in the 1900s and beyond, and going from what now seem rather tame issues like homosexual rights to employment or gays in the military to issues of same-sex marriage, and now even that seems to be compared to transgender and some of the other issues facing us today, even so, we might still say with Voltaire that, well, I disagree with what you say, or stretch that a little to say, I disagree with your lifestyle, but I will defend to the death your right to practice that lifestyle. Within the last couple of decades, the movement seems to have changed. And now the insistence is that not only must you recognize my right to practice my lifestyle, even though you think that lifestyle is deviant and immoral, but I demand further that you affirm and accept my lifestyle as being legitimate, proper, moral, and good. Now, that's something a conservative Christian cannot do. 
because his moral beliefs, as they are taken from the Bible, say that the transgender lifestyle and the homosexual lifestyle are morally wrong. He might say, even though I think they're wrong, I will grant you your right to practice them, and you'll be answerable to God for what you do, but he can't affirm them. Anyway, so is the Jeffersonian ideal that we have these differing views and even differing lifestyles, and we all agree to accept them? Is that even possible? In a society like today, where some are being told they are required to affirm a lifestyle that they believe, based on the Bible or based on traditional morality, is wrong, we're now seeing a clash in which we're testing whether the whole constitutional ideal, at least as Jefferson understood it, maybe not as Jay understood it, whether that whole constitutional republic, that whole ideal, is even possible, whether it's even workable in a, a society that maybe no longer has the same commonality of background and values that Jay says we had back there in 1787. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how all of that works out. And we have a Supreme Court now that, as I said, I would argue is simply trying to get back to the Constitution. Some say it's an ideologically driven court and that we have on the Supreme Court today, we have a block of five conservatives and one moderate conservative who sometimes joins them. But we fail to consider that these justices are each individuals and their views don't always coincide or follow a strict ideology. And I'm going to show you a couple cases decided today that will demonstrate what I mean. So after the break, we'll go into those. <laughs> to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, tell me about these uh, cases that reflect what you were talking about in the first segment. Well, on Tuesday, the I'm sorry, on Wednesday, the 29th of June, we have two decisions released that <clears throat> are not strictly ideological issues. One of them, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, involves an issue concerning American Indian law and the role of Indian reservations in the United States is very difficult. In fact, Indian law is a very difficult subject because it's going to be determined in part by different treaties that the federal government has made with different tribes or nations, but Indian tribes are not states. 
They're rather nations within a nation. We don't make treaties between the federal government and states. We do make treaties with the Indian nations. And so the question in Castro Huerta involves the role of the tribal courts, the Oklahoma state courts, and the federal courts. And in this case, the court held in a 5-4 decision that the federal government has authority and state courts have authority to prosecute crimes that are committed by non-Indians against Indians on an Indian reservation. Castro Huerta, in this case, man illegally in this country, had neglected his handicapped stepdaughter who suffered from cerebral palsy and is blind, and she was found to have been covered in excrement and lice and neglected in many ways. And anyway, so Oklahoma charged him with child neglect. He was convicted and sentenced to 35 years. And he argued that only the tribal court had the authority to protect me because this took place on Indian country and the state of Oklahoma had no authority over me. But the court, in its 5-4 decision, Kavanaugh, conservative, writing the opinion, and joined by Roberts, Thomas, Alito, and Barrett, the court said that both the tribe and the state of Oklahoma have the authority to prosecute a crime on an Indian reservation unless the state or the federal government has specifically yielded authority in that particular field to the Indian nation. In this case, they did not yield it, and therefore the state still had authority to prosecute. Now, Gorsuch, who has been one of the most hardline conservatives on the court so far, lining up usually with Thomas and Alito, he dissented. And he was joined in his dissent by the three liberals, Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan. By the way, after next week, Breyer will no longer be on the court. But anyway, they argue that no, the Indian tribes still retained the authority that they had even before they went on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. And so they and they alone had the authority to prosecute this case. Again, one of the most hardline conservatives joining with the liberals and the more moderate conservatives joining with Alito and Thomas. Now we have another interesting case here, and this is also a 5-4 decision, and the case is Torres versus Texas Department of Public Safety. Torres, what makes this interesting is that it involves the rights of a military veteran. Therese had enlisted in the Army Reserve. He was called to active duty, deployed to Iraq, and while serving, he was exposed to toxic burn pits and developed some breathing conditions as a result of all of this. And this left him unable to return to his old job as a Texas state trooper. But when they refused to employ him in a different role, he filed a lawsuit and argued in that lawsuit that Texas was required under federal law to rehire him to that position. And the court essentially agreed. And the decision is one that is by Breyer, 
but he is joined in this decision by the other two liberals, Sotomayor and Kagan, but also by Chief Justice Roberts and by Justice Kavanaugh, whereas Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito and Justice Roberts go into a dissent. So again, you see, these justices aren't always going to follow the line that we'd expected them to follow at the beginning. And in fact, it's worked out quite a number of times that people appointed to the court don't follow the tradition or the expectations of those who appointed them. Back when Justice Brennan was appointed by, I believe it was by President Kennedy, he was expected to be a liberal judge and he, as a Catholic, gradually became a more conservative judge. And on the other hand, you have certain others that have been both liberal and conservative, some that had been nominated, assuming they would be conservative. The O'Connor, for example, that turned out to be not so conservative. Kennedy, who was thought he would be conservative, but Kennedy was really a mixed bag. He wrote some very conservative decisions and some very liberal decisions. Anyway, so we've got to look at each of these as an individual. I spoke a little bit last week about the differing philosophies of each of them, how the original intent is different in the view of Justice Thomas, who sees it more in terms of first principles, as against Justice Scalia, who sees it more in terms of looking back to the plain language of the founding document, as against Justice Rehnquist, who seems to view original intent more in terms of looking to the history of the time and what events of the time would have caused them to write this provision as they did. Well, anyway, the decision that a lot of people have been waiting for for many weeks and the decision that I've been waiting for for 49 years finally came down last Friday. We're talking about Dobbs versus Jackson, the decision that has the effect of overruling Roe versus Wade. Now, you may recall that Roe versus Wade was decided 49 years ago, 1973. It was a 7-2 to decision. Justice Rehnquist and Justice White both dissented. But it was a decision that struck down the abortion laws of the vast majority of states in this country and held that there is a constitutional right to abortion, and therefore states may not prohibit abortion. Anyway, that's the decision, and the Supreme Court has had very little support for their position in it, as far as saying that the Constitution supports a right to abortion. The justices couldn't even agree among themselves as to where they found that right. Some thought it might be in the Ninth Amendment, which talks about other rights retained by the people. I would only point out in regard to that, that makes no sense at all. The Ninth Amendment speaks of other rights retained by the people, not other rights acquired by the people. And there's no suggestion that the right to abortion was thought to have been a right at the time the Ninth Amendment was adopted. But anyway, others thought it might be the Privileges and Immunities Clause or the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment, 
One even suggested maybe it's the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But they were really skimpy in trying to say where it is. Basically, they just said, it's got to be in there somewhere. And then as far as saying that the state has no authority to regulate abortion until viability, which they wrongly at that time, and even more wrongly later, said is at six months. Again, very skimpy in their evidence for that. Well, more after the break. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm appreciating your take on the Dobbs decision that came down last week. To say that there has been a lot of reaction to it would be to put it mildly, but uh, I appreciate getting the insights of someone who understands how the system works and, and what this ruling really portends. All right. The decision itself, Dobbs versus Jackson, involves a Mississippi law. The law prohibits abortion anytime after 15 weeks after conception. And obviously that law goes contrary to Roe versus Wade, which says that there is a right to abortion and there is basically no circumstance in which the state can regulate abortion until viability, which at that time the court said was after six months, that is, 24 or 36 36 weeks and even now would say a little earlier than that but certainly much later than 15 weeks so either the court was going to have to do something with Roe versus Wade either reverse it, overturn it or at least modify it or else they were going to have to strike down the Mississippi law I think most of us were quite sure that the court was going to uphold the Mississippi law. We, by the way, at the foundation wrote an amicus brief in support of the Mississippi law and entered that brief jointly with the group called Lutherans for Life. But anyway, the question that people's minds was, well, is the court going to overrule Roe versus Wade in its entirety? Or are they just going to modify it to allow for this Mississippi law. That's where the uncertainty was. Anyway, the court majority decided to overrule Roe versus Wade in its entirety. It's a decision that is written by Justice Alito and joined by Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett and Justice Gorsuch. So there are five votes to overrule Roe versus Wade. We had tried to do this quite a number of times in the past in Webster versus Reproductive Services around 1989 or thereabouts, several years later in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. In each case, the, there were four justices who would have overruled Roe versus Wade in its entirety, but we didn't have the fifth justice. Rather, in each of those cases, the court said that we're going to backtrack a little bit. We're going to say now that certain rights, or rather the state has certain authority 
to regulate abortion, like requiring parental consent, requiring a waiting period, requiring that the mother be informed of the status of fetal development, things like this. We're going to require, let states require this sort of thing. But we're not going to say that Roe versus Wade has to be overturned in its entirety because we're not going to say there's no right to abortion. And then in Carhartt versus Gonzalez, the court around 2000 even goes so far as to say that the federal government may prohibit partial birth abortion. But now, finally, we have that fifth vote, and Roe versus Wade is overruled. As a quick aside, we think about who should we give credit for to this, to Justice Alito, certainly, to many others, certainly. But I think there is one person in particular who, above all others, deserves credit for this decision, and that is Donald Trump. Had Donald Trump not made these appointments, appointments which turned out to be pretty solid appointments, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, there is no way we would have the decision that we have today. So credit needs to be given where credit is due. But what the majority is saying in this case, as they uphold the Mississippi law and overrule versus Roe versus Wade, they're not saying what these shrill liberals are saying in the media and what these demonstrators are screaming in the streets. They're not saying that the court has now made abortion illegal. Absolutely not. The court has not done this at all. In fact, I would argue that what the court has done is really a middle ground position, simply saying that the Constitution doesn't recognize an abortion, and therefore the issue rightly rests with the states. Now, the court could have gone to another extreme, as several amici had urged, and that's to say that the right to life guaranteed by the 14th Amendment guarantees to unborn children the right to life and therefore, abortion must be prohibited entirely. They could have gone to that extreme. Or they could have gone to the other extreme that Roe versus Wade went to and said that abortion is a constitutional right and must be legal. Instead, the court took a middle ground position. Middle ground position saying that because the Constitution does not guarantee a right to abortion, the issue is therefore up to the states to regulate as the states see fit. That's a very moderate position. And that is all the court did in Dobbs versus Jackson last Friday, regardless of what you may hear people saying on the streets or in the media, which sometimes is even worse than on the streets. Now, we also need to consider that there were several concurring opinions and I'm not going to have time to address these concurring opinions entirely, but I would like to address one, and that is that of Justice Kavanaugh, because Justice Kavanaugh said some things in his opinion that I think really had a great deal. Justice Kavanaugh joined with the majority, and because he did so, they were a majority. So the Alito opinion is the majority opinion, and Kavanaugh's vote counts, but when you're on the court, you can join in an opinion, and then 
write a concurring opinion to say some additional things that were not in the original opinion, and that's what Kavanaugh did. And in his opinion, he stresses in much more detail than the majority does the matter of stare decisis. Now, what is stare decisis? We hear liberals use that term a great deal when they're afraid that a decision that they like is going to be overturned, like Roe versus Wade. And we hear conservatives use the term, too, when a decision they like is in danger of being overturned. If somebody were to seek to overturn the Heller decision that guaranteed the right to keep and bear arms, conservatives would certainly be talking about stare decisis, let the decision stand. The thing I would say and let Kavanaugh says about stare decisis is that it is a valid principle, but it is not an absolute. And it serves a very valid purpose. One of the things is that we want law to be predictable. And the statutes can't address every single issue. And so we want lawyers to be able to look to the law, look to the case precedents, and advise their clients with reasonable degree of certainty whether something that they're intending to do would be permitted or would be prosecuted. For example, and this person I'm sure would never come to my office, but let's say somebody came to my office, said that he operates a newsstand and he wants to put R-rated and X-rated magazines there on his newsstand. He doesn't want to get prosecuted. And he knows that the law prohibits obscenity, but he wants to be able to go right up to the limit of the law and no further. And here are some magazines, he says, that I'd like to sell. Now, if I sell these, will I get prosecuted? Well, I think it's desirable that in our system, a lawyer is going to be able to tell him with a reasonable degree of certainty whether that conduct would be approved by the court or not, whether it be recognized as protected speech or press under the First Amendment, or whether it be considered obscenity and beyond that protection. Obviously, it's not going to be able to say for certain, but we like some degree of predictability in the law, and stare decisis gives us that predictability. But stare decisis is not an absolute, and Justice Kavanaugh, in his opinion, points out that on many occasions the court has retreated from a previous decision or overturned that decision entirely. For example, we have the decision in the 1890s, Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the Supreme Court said that if you have separate educational facilities for blacks and whites, that's all right. That separate but equal doesn't violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And after our break, we'll continue with that a little more.
And we welcome you back. This is our final segment today of Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, where would you like to go in this final segment? Well, let's continue with Justice Kavanaugh and his concurring opinion. As we said, he joined the majority opinion. He just said, I have a few additional things I'd like to say. And he's addressing this issue of stare decisis. We were talking about how that has not been an absolute. And how back in the 1890s, the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson had said that separate educational facilities do not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Separate but equal is okay, the court said, and that became the doctrine for about 60 years. But then in the 1950s, with Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court overturned that decision and said that in at least in the situation of race relations in public education, separate facilities are inherently unequal and violate the Equal Protection Clause totally overruling Plessy versus Ferguson. And Kavanaugh goes through quite a few other instances, especially in cases involving Commerce Clause or General Welfare Clause powers. The court has overruled previous decisions. And he could have gone much further than this. He could have pointed out that, in fact, the Supreme Court has overruled previous decisions in whole or in part at least 300 times in its history. We've heard the term used that Roe versus Wade is not only precedent, it is a super precedent. That is absolutely ridiculous. First of all, I've taught constitutional law for decades. I never even heard that term super precedent until several years ago when they started using that term in regard to Roe versus Wade, but What they meant by it was a precedent that had been affirmed by subsequent decisions. Roe versus Wade, though, well, it was affirmed by some subsequent decisions, but was also modified by Webster, by by Casey, by Gonzalez versus Carhart, the partial birth, birth decision. And so... Not only is it not a super precedent, it is a suspect precedent. The court has been chipping away at it for years. Anyway, I think Justice Kavanaugh added a great deal to what the majority was saying by strengthening what they were saying about the principle of stare decisis. It's a valid principle, but it's not an absolute. And then we have another opinion that I think we really need to look at here, and that is by Chief Justice Roberts. Now, Roberts does not concur in the majority opinion, but he concurs in the result that the Mississippi law should be upheld. Roberts says, I am not ready at this time to totally overrule Roe versus Wade because I believe we can uphold the Mississippi law without overruling Roe versus Wade. And he suggests that we can modify Roe versus Wade. We can do away with the viability test that Roe versus Wade uses, with the trimester test, which the court had pretty well discarded in Planned Parenthood anyway. And we can modify the decision 
but we don't have to overrule Roe versus Wade in its entirety in order to uphold the Mississippi law. We can say rather that maybe there is a constitutional right to abortion, but the state certainly has a right to restrict that right at least within 15 weeks of conception. Anyway, so what Roberts is doing here, actually there's a sense in which Roberts is acting as the most conservative justice on the court. Because Roberts is practicing judicial restraint. There's a basic principle of conservative jurisprudence that says we don't decide a constitutional issue in advance of the necessity of deciding. Basically, he's saying, proceed slowly. Take it a step at a time. That way, we consider each step more carefully. And so, following that principle of judicial restraint, Robert says, we do not overrule Roe versus Wade until a case is presented to us where we have to overrule Roe versus Wade in order to reach the result. In other words, the statute came before us that prohibited abortion entirely at all stages, then we would have to overrule Roe versus Wade in order to sustain that statute. We should wait until we have such a case and then vote to overrule Roe versus Wade, or at least rule on whether to overrule Roe versus Wade. But we don't have to do that here. Now, I have to say, I have a great respect for what Chief Justice Roberts is saying in that opinion. And as one who believes in restraint, I think under some other circumstances, I might be inclined to agree with him. However, I think I'd agree with the majority here for a couple of reasons. And for one, I think that they really undercut his argument that it is even possible to overrule or to uphold the Mississippi law without overruling Roe versus Wade, the rationale on which he would uphold it, they say, is really rather narrow and rather suspect. But secondly, that the longer we wait, the more deaths are occurring. As abortion exists right now, at least 2,000 babies are being murdered by abortion every single day. And yes, maybe the constitutionally soundest thing to do would be to wait until that right case comes before us, but that's probably going to take several years. In the meantime, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of babies are going to be murdered. And that's one reason why I would have to go with the majority rather than with Roberts. But another reason is sometimes you just have to strike when the iron is hot. Right now, and again, thanks largely to President Trump, we have a clear pro-life majority on the court. We have a clear majority, conservative majority on the court. This is probably the most conservative Supreme Court since at least the 1930s, and probably even before that. But how long we will continue to have that majority on the court, no one knows. And for that reason, I think I would have say strike while the iron is hot. And I would have gone with the majority in saying, 
overruling Roe versus Wade is long overdue. Now that we have the opportunity, let's do it. But one thing that Alito says in his opinion that is certainly worth noting here is that there was no right to abortion in this country. In fact, abortion was regarded as illegal in this country for about the first 185 years of our nation's existence. It only started to come in in the 1960s and 1970s, and now to claim that this is a right deeply rooted in our history and tradition, which they would need to do to claim it to be a constitutional right when it is not expressly mentioned in the Constitution, well, he said, that is clearly ridiculous. Anyway, understand that what's happened here is that the battle is not over. The battle is just beginning. The only difference is, you know, I came into this, I've been involved in rights to life issues. I've been fighting in the state of Iowa before I entered the Air Force, fighting against a liberalized abortion bill there that we managed to defeat. And that was, and then with my pro-life activism and so on, I found that we were that we that we were winning a lot of battles. But then 1973, Roe versus Wade came, and it's like the court put handcuffs on us and said, you can't fight for any meaningful right to life legislation anymore because we're gonna strike it down as unconstitutional. It violates this so-called right to abortion. Well, now, some 49 years later, the court has overruled that. I wondered if I would live to see that day, and I'm thankful that I have. But this does not mean we've won our battle. It just means that the handcuffs have been taken off us. We are now free to fight, and we need to fight in states that have still have legalized abortion laws. We have several states, like Alabama and Oklahoma, in which abortion is now illegal. We have several states that passed restrictive abortion laws and specifically said that those laws would go into effect when the Supreme Court overrules Roe versus Wade, which now they have. So those laws, like South Carolina and Louisiana, are now in effect. In others, now is the time we need to go to work. The battle for the right to life is just beginning.